Before this episode begins, I want to say to my listeners of color, if you are black, if you are indigenous, if you are a person of color, I want you to know that I am listening to you. I hear you. I support you. I care about you. I see your pain. And I promise to keep working to make sure that you are heard and that we can all see that Black Lives Matter. What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Racism in America is like dust in the air. It seems invisible, even if you're choking on it, until you let the sun in. Then you see it's everywhere. As long as we keep shining that light, we have a chance of cleaning it wherever it lands. But we have to stay vigilant because it's always still in the air. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for the LA Times. Some years ago, I noticed something about myself that was difficult to look at. I knew that the recent killings of unarmed black men and boys by white police officers were horrible and tragic and wrong in every way. But when I heard about some of the protests at the time that weren't 100% peaceful or people of color screaming with rage, I felt confused. Couldn't we give peace a chance, sing some songs, hold hands, and walk along softly together? Well, yes, of course, and we do, but it's not sufficient. At least it hasn't been. Digging into those questions helped me start to understand the bigger picture, a process and journey I am still on and will probably be on indefinitely because I've learned that as a white person, I will always have more to learn about racism. I am not advocating for violence. I am advocating for more listening and learning among white people, more understanding, more stepping back, and more raising up marginalized voices. If you're wondering what racism has to do with girl boner, the answer is a lot. I don't believe that we can achieve empowerment, sexual or otherwise, without understanding privilege, especially the kinds we personally have and intersectionality, or the ways different types of lack of privilege overlap and accumulatively make things more difficult. As Dr. Eric Sprankle posted on Twitter, sex positivity is more than simply not yucking someone's yum. If there are systemic and racist barriers for someone to express and enjoy their yum, then those barriers need to be actively dismantled. Sex positivity does not include silence and inaction. On a personal level, I grew up in the Minneapolis area, and I still consider it home. George Floyd, the man recently murdered by a white cop, frequented my parents' favorite coffee shop. I know folks who've had damage near their homes or businesses during protests. I now live in LA where members of the police force turned peaceful protests violent over the weekend. Attendees captured it on video as the walking, dancing, chanting, and togetherness morphed into pellet gun attacks, thrashings, and a burning of this out-of-service police car that was placed there by a white person who was not there to support Black Lives Matter, but seemingly to make it appear violent. I've also seen some positive headlines and stories. 
police in other cities and states taking a knee or marching along with protesters. And then I heard that some of those happenings were probably press ops and took place minutes before protesters were gassed or riddled with pellets. I'm hoping that some of them were authentic and signs of necessary change. I've also noticed fellow white people just now finally realizing they want and need to do something more. For all of those reasons, I'm going to share part of an episode from 2014 when I interviewed Adrian Nieves. At the time, the U.S. was enduring the aftermath of the killings of Michael Brown and Eric Garner. Adrian is a self-taught multidisciplinary artist, speaker, and founder of Tessera Arts Collective, an online platform and mental health support group for women of color. We met at a blogging conference where she read her award-winning essay, America's Not Here for Us. Her voice and that story served as big catalysts for me, and I'm grateful to be able to share her wisdom with you all today. Please stick around to the end of the show to hear Dr. Megan Fleming's thoughts for a listener who's wondering how to talk to her small children about racism. No matter where you are, I hope you're staying safe and keeping your heart and mind open and loving as we all navigate this time. I truly believe we can all make a difference, and that starts in our daily lives. Thank you so much for being here, Adrian. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, August. I'm really um, happy to be here. Wonderful. I, one thing that has really stayed with me ever since your presentation at BlogHer was the way that you described being the mother to black boys. And I think that it's very, you know, easy for uh, women with, uh, with privilege, women, white women who are in areas where um, maybe they don't see the adversity or they've never experienced that to really understand how different it can be. Could you just share uh, what, are, what are some of the differences for you that you see uh, raising these beautiful black boys of yours? Uh, sure, definitely. Um, I think for me, something that became very clear after um, uh, Trayvon Martin's murder um, back in uh, a couple of years ago, and you know, especially after George Zimmerman's acquittal of that murder, it became very obvious to me that no matter what I did, I could teach my son to, to care and respect other people. I could, you know, express to him the importance of getting an education and working hard. I could, you know, teach him to respect authority and to respect the law and um, to respect other people. And it just wouldn't be enough. And, you know, growing up as a person of color in this country, you know, that's something that our parents instilled into us. You know, you just you just have to work hard. You know, you have to work harder than your white counterparts and your white friends to be taken seriously and to kind of try to have the same advantages that they do. You know, getting an education, getting a good job, following the rules, obeying the law, you know, were all things that were instilled in me growing up um, because... I'm a person of color and me being a mother and seeing what happened with um, Trayvon Martin, it just really hit me that it might not be enough for my son. It was enough for me so far to kind of keep me alive, but it might not be enough for, for my own sons. And, you know, um, like I spoke about in my piece, just hearing 
or in reading the different things that were going on online and what people have been saying about President Obama and Paula Dean's use of racial slurs and people excusing it. And, you know, my son at the time was learning about slavery and, you know, President Lincoln and the Civil War in class. And, you know, he just, he just had these questions for me and having to answer those questions and try to talk with him as openly and honestly as I could for his age, it was really difficult. And I think that's just the biggest difference is that these conversations aren't ones that white mothers have to have with their sons, especially so young. Like, I feel like I, I don't have the luxury of putting off these kinds of conversations. Because as we as we've seen, especially since Trayvon's death, that you know our boys are dying at a much earlier age, and the people killing them are not being prosecuted. You know the people who are supposed to be protecting and serving us, they're also killing us and not being prosecuted as they should, or you know at least even just going to trial as they should. Sure. And that's just really disheartening, especially as a mom, to try to navigate. But at the same time, raise your kids to want to live up to their potential and to, you know, love who they are, to engage in a world that sees them as volatile, doesn't recognize their humanity. It's really, it's really difficult. Sure. Gosh, my heart just aches when I, when I hear you speak about it. I can't even imagine. Uh, and all these events recently must have just been extremely terrifying on a whole new level. I, as I understand it, the Black Lives Matter, the, the hashtag, the movement was created, I believe, in 2012 after um, Trayvon Martin was, was killed and then George Zimmerman was, was acquitted, which was horrifying. Why do you feel that that um, movement, that hashtag is so important and kind of what is it? What is it doing? What, what is the benefit? I think the biggest thing is that it showcases our humanity. You know, I think historically, black and brown people in this country have not even been considered as human beings. You know, we are three-fifths of a person historically. We are, we have been property. Our humanity has never been officially recognized and acknowledged and embraced and celebrated. And I think Black Lives Matter is just a way to combat that and to say, no, you know what? We are human and we have just as much right to exist as everyone else. And not only that, but we have a right to express our humanity like everyone else, you know, especially for myself as a black woman, if I express any kind of outrage or, you know, anger, or if I'm upset, I get tone policed constantly, Mm. especially online by white people, especially saying that, you know, I shouldn't be so angry. I need to tone it down. We're just not allowed to be human to express our humanity. So I think Black Lives Matter is kind of a rallying cry against that and and against racial injustice in the United States. Beautifully said. And I have to say, first of all, I wish I could apologize for all of those um, naysayers and, and people speaking out that way. But I also want to just thank you because you're uh, expressing your anger and your passionate, outspoken posts and words and, and honesty online have inspired me so much. I I have felt in recent years sort of this, it's like I, I 
feel like I almost don't have the right to talk about racism because I am, you know, a white woman. And, and I, and I remember, and actually I think you were the one who pointed this out to somebody online, said something along the lines of, cause I thought, well, I don't even know what to say. I'll say the wrong thing. And <laughs> I believe it was you who said, <laughs> you know, welcome to our world. And I thought, you know what, I got to say something. And then I started yes. to see this other hashtag come out where people, they see black lives matter instead of looking to see why it's there, why it's important. It's almost like they just instantly became defensive and said, wait a minute, if you're saying black lives matter, then the rest of the lives don't matter. What's the problem with that? Or what's your take on it, I guess? Again, I think it just comes back to any time black people especially express themselves and uh, try to rally and to process as a community what we're experiencing, the dominant culture, white America, if you will, will somehow find a way to try to discredit and negate it. And for me, that's what All Lives Matter is. It's an attempt to kind of undermine and discredit the rally cry that we're currently having. And it's problematic because it takes the focus away from what the issue really is, which is black men especially are 21 more times as likely to be arrested were killed by police than white men. And it's not addressing the fact that when white police officers either gun down or use excessive force on black bodies, they're not being prosecuted. A grand juries are saying, you know what, this doesn't even have to go to trial to at least hear both sides. If you are saying all lives matter, you're basically saying that what we're experiencing and what we feel about it and the trauma that we're experiencing is, is nothing Mm. that it doesn't matter. Um, and it's, it's hurtful and it's, it's really sad. People will listen to others. Um, but when it comes to black men and women expressing their grief, expressing, their desire for change, expressing their anger at injustice, especially the kind of injustice that we've been seeing in the legal system, especially these past few months. Um, People will find a way to kind of cut it down and try to silence it. Which only affirms the importance of it. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's really showing how vital that that all is. And uh, hopefully, I mean, I've seen some positive things uh, happening and, and you hope that each time there's a tragedy, you really hope that the one silver lining that doesn't make up for any of it, but that one bright thing that could happen is this will be the thing that, you know, turns everything around or allows us to yeah, turn everything definitely. around. What are you grateful for with all that's been happening as far as this activism? You know, growing up, I read... Um, uh, Rolling Thunder, Hear My Cry. And I remember reading that book and reading about the civil rights movement and some of the things that, that the characters were going through and feeling in my heart, like, I just, I wanted to like raise my hand up in the air and be like, yes, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of like, I, <laughs> I always say I felt like an activist at a very young age because I read that book and because I learned a lot about the civil rights movement and um, our history in this country um, with slavery and the Civil War and all of that. 
And I kind of now feel like I get to take a, a part in history in the same way that those who came before us did in standing up against injustice, in making our voices heard. I've gone to two protests since Mike Brown's death. I wanted to go to everyone that was in Austin, but unfortunately I could not. (laughs) Um, You know, my husband asked me to stay home a couple of times just for safety reasons because he was concerned. But the most recent protest, you know, I I took my oldest son with me. And even to have him with me and to be able to explain to him, you know, that his life matters and to explain to him what a protest is and what the Constitution says about peaceful assembly and to tell him that he has a right to express himself and to gather with other people peacefully and say, hey, you know, my life is worth something. You know, that really touched me, especially because he was so excited about it. He was holding up signs. He was chanting with others. He was high-fiving other kids who were there. He marched with us, and we did a die-in, and he laid down with us. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm just I'm really grateful for that. I'm grateful that my son had that experience. I'm grateful that I get to be a part of, you know, the conversation that is trying to move us forward and help us evolve in terms of... Um, racial justice. So I'm, I'm glad to see that there are some really difficult conversations being had on both a personal level with, you know, between people and their families and friends, but then also on a national level. And as tragic as it is and as troubling as it is, it's exposing something that needs exposing and kind of waking people up, people who think that we're a post-racial society, kind of waking them up out of that stupor to show them that, hey, no, we're not. We still have a lot of work to do, and this is, these are the next steps. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. The other day on Instagram, so in late May 2020, Adrian shared an image of her son from 2014 at that rally she talked about. It shows him surrounded by fellow protesters and gazing up with this hopeful, open look in his eyes. Below it, Adrian wrote, The only things that have changed between then and now, his age, mine, and where we live. The killings, though, they haven't stopped. From Ayana to Trayvon, to Jordan, to Marion, to Tamir, to Mike, to Freddie, to Corinne, to Sandra, to Larry, to A. Tatiana, to everyone in between, named and unnamed, known and unknown, The killings haven't stopped, but neither have our demands that they do. I'm grateful that the man who killed George Floyd was arrested and charged with murder. And as of today, literally, I had to jump back in with this update. Attorney General Keith Ellison is increasing those charges from third to second degree murder and charging the other three officers who were involved too. And yesterday it was announced that the Minnesota Department of Human Rights filed a civil rights charge against the Minneapolis Police Department. Many people are rightfully crediting protests for these changes. So for anyone who has wondered whether protests work, these right here are just a few examples that show they do. I hope we will all make the demands Adrian talked about, especially those of us who are white, We don't have to get advocacy or activism right all the time. No one does. We will mess up. I know I do. But we have to try. 
I read a great quote yesterday from a book I recommend for anyone who is interested in starting or furthering their work in anti-racism called How to Be an Anti-Racist. It's by Ibram X. Kendi. He said, racial inequality is a problem of bad policy, not bad people. Put another way, we must vote and register to vote if we haven't and advocate for better policies if we hope to see lasting change. To learn more about Adrienne, follow her on Instagram at B underscore art. Since we spoke, she has soared as a visual artist. Her paintings are stunning. From there, you can check out Tessera Arts Collective. I'll share links down in the show notes too. This week's listener question came from someone in the Minneapolis area. It's from Diane who wrote this. I'm not sure how to talk to my kids about what's going on with the protests and the murder of George Floyd. I have two small children. One is prone to anxiety. My partner and I, we're all white, are learning about racism ourselves. My inclination is to protect them from the news and say nothing, but that honestly feels cowardly. We made it a mission of ours to raise sex-positive kids a few years back, and I'm embarrassed to say I would rather talk to them about sexuality than all of this. It is only now occurring to us how important it is to talk about other difficult subjects like these, Diane. Diane, I appreciate your question so much. Here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of greatlifegreatsex.com had to say. Diane, thank you so much for this question because, first of all, I want to congratulate you that you're even aware and notice that having this conversation about racism is indeed harder than talking about sexuality. And I certainly know in August in this community, that for most, if not many of us, sexuality, even with our children, is a difficult conversation. So first of all, congrats and kudos to you for raising sex-positive children and that you're beginning this conversation because, again, my heart goes out as it does for, I imagine, everybody listening, not only for George Floyd, but for his family, his community, and honestly, all of us as a polarized nation. And I think it's honestly time that in asking your questions, we... Ultimately, all of us stop asking people of color to explain racism and that we ultimately educate ourselves. So to that vein, I'm going to recommend two books. Uh, Of course, there are many out there, but these are good places to start. The first is White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin D'Angelo. And the other is How to Be an Anti-Racist by Abram X. Kendi. And the reason it's so important we educate ourselves is that that is the sort of first step to talking to our children about race. Uh, There's research from Harvard that says children as young as the age of three, three, when exposed to racism, just tend to embrace and accept it. And even though they may not yet understand the feelings, and by age of five, children are strongly biased toward whiteness. So the reality is we aren't born racist. It's something that we're taught and something that we learn. And so we as parents have this opportunity to educate ourselves and our children, to build a new level of awareness, to take action and show up in a different way, to take different actions so that we don't let history keep repeating itself. And to counter that bias, you know, we need to, as early, you know, as kids have words, begin to educate them about what racism is. So, one of the best ways, I think, to have these conversations and to facilitate them with children is books, uh, children's books, because they really are great ways of initiating ways to talk about what it means to be a racist 
in to dismantle oppression. And so a great resource for that is embracerace.org. It actually gives a list of 31 children's books that I would love everybody listening to check out. And other important tools, I think, as a parent, again, how to have these conversations with our children. One is raceconscious.org. And the other is parenttoolkit.com. I'm going to have August put all these resources in the show notes for you. So if you're listening while driving, you can follow up with them later. But I think, again, we there are some common strategies, Diane, that I want to just sort of highlight. And that is one, you know, at the earliest of ages that we are naming race and whiteness with these children's books, with mad uh, media and advertising. We get to show them what whiteness looks like and how many white, you know, men, women, boys, girls are representative in the media or in the shows that they watch so that whiteness in and of itself is not invisible to them. We also need to, when and if they have any questions, affirm them and know that these are conversations that we can continue to have. And again, going back to where you started, Diane, I can appreciate as a parent, right, that especially with an anxious child, you know, there's a part of you that would like to avoid and to, in a sense, protect him. But the reality is, you know, this is the thing about anxiety and avoidance. Ultimately, we're not then learning the skills and tools. And so it's really understanding, of course, he might have anxious feelings. He might be angry. He might be depressed as your other children may as well be. But it's so important that we can honor and acknowledge and have our children be able to have and know and name their own feelings as well as to be able to communicate their questions. Um, And it's also important that we speak up, that when and if we see something, sort of the see something, say something, if something makes us uncomfortable, we need to let our children that we're uncomfortable and the why we're uncomfortable. And we also need to be, in my mind, advocates so that our children can see that we have an ability to make change and to strive for change. It is basically modeling for our children what it looks like, you know, through educating ourselves, what it looks like to work towards racial justice. So Diane, thank you so much for this question. And I hope everyone listening to it has taken away some great resources, because as I said, it's up to us to educate ourselves and to take action. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Megan. She is so right about educating ourselves. If you are white, please don't reach out to black people asking them how to help or to explain anything about racism. If a person of color offers to speak or share about racism, which is how I go about things with guests here, then please accept that support graciously and pay it forward as far as you can. I also agree about the power of children's books. My sister, who's a school psychologist in Minnesota, recommends Last Stop on Market Street, written by Matt de la Pena and illustrated by Christian Robinson. She said that it beautifully and gently brings up ideas of privilege and race. Find links to ways to help and resources, including those Megan mentioned, down in the show notes. We will wrap up today with a beautiful vocal performance by Amber B. Coleman, who you can find on Instagram at I am. Amber B. Coleman. Fixate us, misinterpretate us, frustrate us, redlining, overstate us. Can't believe y'all still trying to erase us. Love our culture, but y'all seem to hate us. Complicate us and oversimplify us. Agitate us and invalidate us. Deflate us, refuse to reparate us. Can't tell, do you love or do you hate us? Hey. 